This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with a first time guest, someone I've known for 12 years, but we've ever, never actually met physically. But I was on his podcast. Uh, Lord knows, Kevin, how long ago? Year and a half? About a year and a half ago. Yeah. yeah. Time flies. Yeah, time flies. Kevin Jans is CEO of Skyway Acquisitions and his podcast, Contracting Officers Podcast, is truly one of the must listens in the in the GovCon arena. You learn something that you need to know in every freaking episode. So let's start with your background, Kevin. Fill me in, man. So contracting officer for the first half of my, I say career, I guess we'll call it. The, the other half has been me as an entrepreneur. But I realized as a contracting officer that there were, there were things I thought industry knew about how contracting officers thought. And there were things that I, I was learning about industry that I thought government thought. And they did. turns out they didn't know a lot of these things. And so I decided with a four-year-old and a six-year-old about, I don't know, 12 years ago now, to go out on my own and help fix this problem. And so our company, Skyway Acquisition, is named after the, the Skyway Bridge down here in Tampa. It goes across Tampa Bay. And the logic in it was if we could be a bridge between government and industry, because we have a team of us that have all been company officers and we've been on the industry side. So that's the gap we fill for folks. And now those kids are 17 and 15. <laughs> and like I said, we're a team of, of 12 people now. And we're, uh, what, almost 400 podcast episodes later and every day trying to fix GovCon one relationship at a time by helping people understand with context what's going on on the government side. They're not crazy. They're not trying to make your life hard. Here's what's happening. And then likewise, about 30% of our podcast listeners are government folks who are trying to understand why is an industry do it this way? And we help them understand that. So it's both sides. We're, we're that bridge. That's us in a nutshell. Cool. Do you help both sides of the equations of Skyway? Do you help government or are you helping industry primarily? We're primarily on the industry side. Uh, most of our clients are companies that are between five and 500 employees. We've got some that are Fortune 100 and some that are startups. But the basic idea is if you wish you had a contracting officer in the room to answer a question, that's why we're here. A, a good number of our podcast listeners are, con are government contracting folks on the government side because they like getting the industry point of view. Because again, the things I didn't know that I didn't know when I was a contracting officer are are, are mountainous, right? And by helping them have context on why contractors do certain things and need certain things, that's the gap we fill for the government. So we're kind of in between. But our, our primary bread and butter, yeah, we, we serve government contractors. Cool. I, I love the niche you fill because there's assumptions on both sides that are just based on, you know, myth. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to be polite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but... Let's start with this then from from your perspective, especially because you talk to a number of them all the time. What are the top issues facing uh, contracting officers today? So I'll start with it. It's such an interesting role and I, I enjoyed it for for 16 years. We have a, a bunch of us that have touched lots of different parts of it. It's a very complex role because you're part negotiator, part lawyer, part administrator, all these different roles you have. Right. But what makes it hard 
among many things, is the level of regulation seems to be increasing, the le level of mother may I's, that kind of thing. At the same time, the expectation of speed acquisition is speeding up. And, and this is not new to your point. And this has been, both of these have been increasing, the expectation of speed and the, the amount of rules that have been added. Both of them have been increasing over the years. So the, the conflict between those two is probably the, the, the biggest challenge I see folks. Uh, so for example, so a, a program manager, a government customer, right? will say, I want something done through an OTA. Contracting officer who may or may not have experience with them or may or may not be an agreements officer suddenly has to learn OTAs. The expectation is that's going to be faster. And we did a podcast, I think it was 395 about OTAs. Sometimes they're faster, sometimes they're not. But the expectation of the contracting officer is, poof, go learn this. OTAs have been around for 50 years, but they haven't been popular except for like the last 10, right? So there's a lot of things like this that are rolling up on contracting officers. And, and you, you, we get a lot of questions from them, again, from podcast listeners, trying to understand what, what is this new regulation? How can I apply it properly? What's industry's perspective of it? And so that's the third thing I'll say that, that government folks are, are, are challenged with is getting that industry perspective. Because the, the, here's, the, here's the hard part. As a contracting officer, if I reach out to one company, to get some industry perspective, the perception is I have to reach out to all of them. Well, the reality is I don't need to do that, right? But that's the perception. So the other 15 companies I don't talk to, they all call me and say, why didn't you ask my opinion? And then we get down this argumentative cycle. And so one of the things I like to point out to folks is that the kind of thing that you do with marketing and whatnot, getting people aware of who you are, the reason it's so important is that I'll, I'll pick on one part of the FAR. FAR 15.2 talks about industry and government are supposed to be talking. And the way I interpret that as a contracting officer, because I want to be safe, is I have to talk to everybody. The reality is I can't talk to everybody. So what do I do? I talk to nobody, right? What if we flip that on its head and say, I don't have to talk to everybody. Therefore, the people who do the marketing better, who have talked to our government customer more, who understand how to solve our problem better, have gotten in front of us before we drop the RFP, they have an advantage. It's not an unfair advantage. It's just an advantage. And so rather than feel like a contracting officer has to talk to everybody, which is how I felt when I was a contracting officer, now helping them understand who you talk to can be limited by what market research you're doing. You don't have to talk to every company. You can talk to the companies that are in front of you until, and this is a big one, <laughs> until the RFP drops, right? Then it's a different conversation. But during that market research zone, that's what we call it, and we call it the market research zone before the RFP drops, the open communication should be there. And navigating that is is continuing to be a very hard part for government folks because the access to them is easier. You can find me to be able to find the program manager, the government contracting officer you used to have to like dig through the bowels of paperwork. Well, now they're on LinkedIn. You can Google them, right? Like they're, you, know, you can find them through GovWin or there's lots of different ways to find them. I'm easier to find. So now I'm getting a whole lot of people talking to me. That makes it harder to filter which ones do I talk to. Okay, you, you said something there that, that definitely piqued my interest because I just did an article for, uh, for GovConWire, uh, uh, Jim Garrison's uh, executive mosaic uh, e-news program. Uh, two problems facing uh, industry. Number one, the contracting officer doesn't know us. You know, cry me a river jerk. You know, that's not their problem. And number two, somebody else got in front of the RFP. Well, you know, right. that's not the contracting officer's problem either. Both of these you can deal with. Yeah, and we did an episode called uh, Where Does the RFP Come From? And the idea being that the contracting officer doesn't have any money. The 
contracting officer doesn't have a requirement. What they have is the ability to take the money from the, the person, from the economic decider and solve the customer's problem with it. So this idea of the, the RFP came from somebody else. It came from either from marketing. If it's a new requirement, it came from a, an, an existing requirement that we're now recompeting. But to come to the contracting officer and say, hey, you didn't let me know about this. It's not my requirement. <laughs> I'm here to execute a plan that I've built with the other two deciders. So this idea of, of you know, they don't let me know anything of, of ahead of the RFP. In a perfect world, should I be talking to every company? Yeah. Can I? No. It's, it's, it's impractical. I mean, the, the, the idea of, of checking with every person and communicating with everyone is one of the reasons that there's little communication. Because the fear is I have to talk to everyone. So therefore, what am I going to do? Talk to nobody. Because it's an impossible standard. Okay, quick question. Which episode is the RFP thing? Because you, you can usually pull these right out of your head. I think that's 392. Uh, so here, shortcut is if you go to uh, govconpodcast.com, that's the shortcut to our library. And then just click on search. And well, number one, you'll see all of them on the screen. But yeah, cool. if, you, if you search for where do RFPs come from, or just cool. actually just search for RFP, you'll probably find 10 of them <laughs> that are about that topic. Well, they'll all be worth listening to, but that that one in particular is is of interest. And I forget the other part of the question I was going to ask because my brain is a sieve. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> We're throwing a lot at you. Um, yeah, you are. But I mean, it this this is all cool stuff. I mean, I love talking to you. I love being on your show because you spout from memory. And there's two numbers for you listening out there. There's two numbers he's going to throw out. He's going to throw out FAR references, and he's going to throw out episode references. Make notes on both uh, because they're important if Kevin's bringing them up. Um, (laughs) Repeat the uh, place where they can find your podcast, please. So go to GovCon, as in government, you're short for government contracting. So GovConPodcast.com. Uh, cool. It's called the Contracting Officer Podcast, which we have that URL also, but that's a lot longer to type out. <laughs> you just right. type out GovCon Podcast. It well, I'll right tell you what, you, that, the fact that you got that URL shows that you were ahead of the curve anyway. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I, did a, uh, I did a TED Talk on podcasting back in 2015. And at the time, it was, I think we had, I, 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 you know, quote, unquote, I'm putting air quotes up here. I bragged that we had like 1,200 listeners back then. Because I was like, you can't, you know, 1,200 people wouldn't fit in our conference room, right? So this is working. Well, here we are seven years later and we get like, I don't know, 5,000 downloads a day. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of amazing how podcasting is, you know, I, I was probably three years too early, but yeah, rather be early than late, right? Well, early than late, and but you, you know, you stayed the course. Um, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Uh, Kevin Jans is going to be with me for three more segments, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Kevin Jan, CEO of Skyway Acquisition and host of the Contracting Officers Podcast, which you can find at govconpodcast.com. I strongly suggest you do so. I've listened to a number of episodes, uh, and I'm learning stuff every time I go. Um, So let's let's continue down the... uh, the path we were going, top issues facing contracting officers. But during the break, we were touching on how both sides may need something. What would that be? <laughs> so, so in this training is such a, a wide open discussion point. And w- what's interesting is that that 
a lot of the training I, I got as a contracting officer was very much a large blanket of, of content of which I had to kind of cherry pick which pieces, right? And in, in their defense, in, in the DAU, Defense Acquisition University in particular, has, I'll say, thinned the blanket down to here are some expertise levels. Like, for example, if you're going to go in construction, they get you more of an expert in this, right? As opposed to knowing all types of contracting. And so the, it's getting better. But one of the things that the, one of the big things I see missing of two, and they're, and they're both on the, the perspective of making sure you understand how contractors think. So if I'm a contracting officer now, I would say the two things they need training on is proposals, just some awareness, like just like a half a day training on like, what does it take to write a proposal? How much effort is it? I remember I, I told this joke a lot. I remember in meetings, I would ask, hey, hey, can, can you put together an alternate proposal for that? I had no idea how much work that was when I asked people to do that. And of course, you know, they're, they're serving their government customer. They're like, uh, okay, sure. And then they probably spent the whole weekend working on it. I had no context. So that's one area that, that government folks need some context is how much work does it really take to do a proposal? And that's, I mean, that, that could be a half day training on just color teams. We have a I'm going to test my numbers. I want to say it's like 230 something is our one on, on what is a color team. But those kind of concepts are lost on, on, on folks. So we don't have context on the government side. The second thing is I, I feel like it would serve the government folks really well to have some, some sales training. And that's a huge topic, right? But in terms of what is sales, the sales is solving a problem. It help people understand the, the business development folks who are reaching out to you if they're just spamming you and they're not trying to solve your problem, okay, that's the crappy type of sales. That's the, that's the used car salesman we all complain about. But when they can solve a problem for your customer and they've crafted a process to be able, and if you understand what that process looks like, I, I would be much, I would have been much more receptive to having conversations with people, to, to what I would say at industry day. So when I was on a panel, I'd have a better understanding of why they're asking the questions they were. And I'm not saying they're contacting officer salespeople. I'm saying give them some training to give them some context so they can understand the difference between the used car salesman who's trying to sell you a car you don't need versus a business development person who's trying to solve a problem that he knows the government has. Because you've had this contract, he or she, you've had this contract for 20 years. You're going to re recompete it. The problem's still here. <laughs> I'm just trying to understand how best to solve it. But because we as government folks, I'm playing with a broad brush, but I as a contracting officer saw all salespeople the same. And so when they came to my desk, my perception is they're trying to pitch me something. They might be trying to understand the problem so they can pitch me something in proposal later. But right now, my communication with them should be seen as a lower risk. So there's two areas. And, and I've, I've only said this in, in passing on a couple of, of our podcasts. So you're the first person to hear my big pitch about proposals and sales. If you can help them, give them some context on those two. For that matter, if they go watch YouTube videos on it, <laughs> we'll be better off. But the things that I didn't know that I didn't know about how proposals work blows my mind nowadays. Number one, I totally agree. But number two, I don't want them going to YouTube because who knows what they're going to see there. <laughs> so, fair uh, point. Okay. Yeah, bad so, advice. You're right. I'm just crafting, trying to move the needle. I mean, you and I should sit down and craft a couple of YouTube sessions on sales and BD for contracting officers. So yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. And just, just to have some context on this is, this is when it's done well, it actually helps your customer. And when they understand what the rules are, we, we did a, um, I'm, I'm having trouble with my numbers. I don't this it's like 220 or something, but we did one, uh, the contracting officer as the umpire. And the idea, that's a, one of our podcast episodes. And the idea is I'm seen as the rules keeper, right? Well, I can be an umpire when I know what the rules are. It's 
easier for me to be. Well, it's also easier to play the game of baseball if you know what the rules are. Yep. Well, if both sides don't really clearly understand the rules, which is oftentimes what happens in business development and sales when you're dealing with the government, we end up in lots of arguments or we shut down and don't have communication at all. And so that's the outcome I'm looking for is to help them give context on what is the other side trying to do so that I can, I can see where, where the, what are the rules? Are we playing nine innings or are we playing 13 innings? <laughs> it's like, help me understand what we're doing here. Cool. Um, I, I like the rules aspect. So I'm going to ask a question about newbies in rules. I, I don't know how many companies are, are registered at SAM or whatever it's called this year is, you know, the last time I looked, it was like 550,000. So it could be a million. It could be 600,000. Who cares? But uh, most of them are relative. I call them newbies because they haven't won any business. Um, so how, how many how many different rules do newbies break when they reach out or um, maybe a better way to say it is how many mistakes do they make coming in to talk to a contracting officer if they get in? So, yeah, I would say most of the time before the RFP drops, you're not breaking a rule. You're just, you're, you're just not effectively communicating. Uh, and and the, the the biggest mistake you'll see there is the playing the volume game. Uh, you and I talked about when you, you were a guest on, on our podcast, you talked about the value of targeting. And you gave an example of, of, of one of your clients that's been working with the same agency for 20 years and has done extremely well because they're focused, right? Well, as a content officer, when you just send me emails, like I, I, I don't know, I probably got three or four emails a day because, again, my email is really hard, easy to find. It's sitting right in, in sam.gov because I've awarded contracts, right? So, so these data systems will scrape it and then people will start spamming me emails. It's like the opposite of effective because now I see your name and associate it with something I have to hit, you know, delete on constantly. So that's one of the big mistakes is just assume that if I just yell at you long enough, you're going to hear me, right? So that, that the, the single biggest mistake. And then the next one is not understanding the basics of the rules is what, like to your point, when can a contracting officer talk to you? Does a contracting officer have a requirement? No. Contracting officer doesn't have the money. Remember, contracting officer doesn't have the money. It doesn't have a requirement. So if you come to the contracting officer saying, hey, will you buy this? There, is there a requirement for it? Is, is, does my agency even buy it? Is, is the contract vehicle that you have how I, I could buy it? A better solution is I talk to the program manager. I talk to the government customer. Oh, by the way, I'm on this contract vehicle. Okay, now we have a reason to talk. But before then, if you're just trying to sell me something, again, I'm not the buyer. Well, let me say that again. I'm not the, the person with a need. I may be the one that can actually sign the contract and buy it, but I'm not going to be the user. That's probably a better term for it. I'm going to jump to one of my podcast episodes. And this one's episode 118. It's called The Three Deciders. And so visualize a, a triangle, right? And on, on one side, you've got the economic decider. And they're going to decide if we're going to buy something. And then on the, the right side, you've got the customer. They're going to decide what we're going to buy. And then on the bottom, you've got the contracting officer. And they're going to decide how we're going to buy and our whole company, we live in a how. That's what, that's what we do. We, we help people understand how the government can buy from you. And to give you some context on this three deciders, if, if you and I are buying a car, we're all three deciders. We're deciding to buy the car because we have the money. We're deciding what car we're going to buy because we're the user. And then we have the ability to sign the contract. Well, as you get up into larger organizations, you'll notice that those are different groups. In the government, they're by law different groups. <laughs> like the contracting officer doesn't work for the program manager. Because that way, when the program manager says, go buy this, and they're like, it's not a commercial item. It's made in China. I can't buy it this way. They can say no. That, that's why they have the, the three sides of the triangle. That's why we have these three decider groups. But the idea as a, as a newbie 
if you don't understand those three different deciders. And when the, when one of them says to you, sure, I'll buy that, but they don't have the ability to buy it. You need one of the other deciders. Or if you have a customer that says, yes, I want this, but it's not funded because they haven't talked to the economic decider. So you need all three deciders. And that's probably the, in addition to the whole spamming me with all kinds of content, but the, the biggest problem I see with a lot of newbies is they don't understand that there are three different, and it's not three individuals, it's three groups of people. And once you start looking at the groups of people who, who are involved in an acquisition, they all fit into one of those three. They're either funding it, they either want it, or they didn't, they didn't know how to buy it. Those are the three groups. And again, we talk about this in detail in episode 118. About and, six and, years ago, and, we came and I've and I've listened to that episode a couple of times because it is really really good. Um, but yeah, you know, let, let, let me go back to the beginning of the pandemic. How many times did you talk to contracting officers who had gotten fifty, sixty calls that week from companies that now sold masks? <laughs> yep, and and they're just and they maybe they're a reseller or yeah, they've got all these. I just I want to sell you something. Well. It, think about it from, from a, again, I, I like to talk about sometimes if you look at a contracting officer role, again, I'm a human, right? I'm not a robot. And so if what you're doing feels like it'd be a pain in the butt for you to deal with as a human, then assume that the contracting officer might see it the same way. On top of the fact that they've got this giant pile of regulations and they've got the three deciders to deal with and you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea is, well, if, if this is easy to do, if I can just call up the government and say, buy my masks, that's, that, that's too good to be true. <laughs> if you had a contract vehicle in place, if you if there was a reason that I could buy them from you, if we were already buying from you ahead of time, if you had con- a contract vehicle we could use, all of those factors need to be in the conversation. And and not even mentioning, you know, where the masks came from. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other whole other rabbit trail. Yeah, I, I just got these. I found these and they shipped them over from China. Can you just buy them? Uh, I, I get them from Amazon. I'm reselling them to you. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Very few things are linear. <laughs> uh, true, true, true. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Two more segments with Kevin. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Kevin Jans. Kevin is the CEO of Skyway Acquisitions and the host of the Contract Contracting Officer Podcast. Contracting Officer Podcast. You know, after all the episodes I'd listened to, you figure I'd get that part right, huh? Uh, but no. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it, it's kind of the running joke when we first named it. It's like, it's the longest name. And, and I kind of, I came to the realization that, that that's how I represent to the to the GovCon world is as a contracting officer. So we just own it. <laughs> and it's it's interesting that people will, will think it's only for contracting officers. And it's not. It's, it's oh. contracting officer's perspective on this market. No, uh, after I went back and listened to the episode we did, I actually posted it and featured it on my LinkedIn profile because, uh, number one, I thought it was fun. Number two, you were educating me. You weren't interviewing me. <laughs> I appreciate that because you've been, you've been doing this a while. You know what you're doing. I've, I've been doing this a few weeks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So let's, let's talk about the elephant in the room for contractors, CPARs. Uh, when you've executed, you can get a CPARS. When you get terminated, you can get a CPARS. So first and foremost, what what is it? So the simplest way to think of it, it's, it's like a credit score for your contract performance. Uh, it's, the, it's the best, well, best is a relative term. It can be the best way 
for the government to be able to track your past performance. And, and the reason that that's so important is we, we did an episode, uh, episode 124, uh, which again was like 280 episodes ago. Wow. Um, but it's called that uh, past performance is a bridge to the next contract. And the reason that's such an important concept, to which grasp, is a great quote. <laughs> thanks. Uh, the, the reason it's such a, a great, important concept to grasp is that when I award a contract to somebody and I say, I, cause as a contracting officer, that's my name's on there. I, I really don't want to do it twice. Right. Cause I'm, I'm a human. Like I don't, I'm lazy. I don't want to do things twice. Right. Well, one of the best ways to keep from doing things twice is know who you gave the contract to can actually do it. Right. It's the same reason that you may not buy a, uh, your car from a fly by night organization. You want to buy it from a dealer. So you know that your warranty can actually be used. Right. Sa- same concept of, I don't want to do this twice. So because of that, the easiest quote unquote, easiest way for me to track whether or not you can do the work is past performance. I can see how have you done it. And, and we had these conversations, a lot of past experiences. Have you done it? Past performance is how well you've done it. And so the whole idea of the, the contractor performance assessment reporting system, <laughs> the CPARS, is how well have you done it? We, we want a judgmental and theoretically ob- objective, but they're, they're humans, so they're going to be subjective by definition. But they're based on some kind of metric of how well have you done this, right? And so the CPARS is something I want to lean on as a contracting officer or, or any kind of past performance I can get. I used to do pre-award surveys on companies for the same reason. I wanted the defense contract uh, management agency to l- tell me how well did they do? Because if I'm going to give them a, okay, and, and that, and the story I'm thinking of, it was a $50 million contract. But even if it's 5 million, I don't want to do it twice. I don't want to do this twice. I mean, again, it's a human, right? So what's the best way for me to know they can do the work? Yes, they can write a great proposal. There's all that. I get that. But there are folks that I, I joke about, uh, don't be all, all icing and no cake. You write a great proposal but can you deliver? And you may have a phenomenal story, but I need to know, can you actually do this? Right. And that's why the CPARS and the past performance model is so important is because I, I need to know, can you do it? So I don't have to recompete it. And, and let's zoom out for a second. The point of the contract isn't to award a contract. The point of the contract is to meet somebody's need. Somebody needs the network to work, the body armor, the vehicle, the, the, the sniper rifle, the ammunition, the, the helicopter system, the training system, the health equipment, and all just thinking of things that I bought. They need them to work, right? Well, if the contract doesn't work because the contract didn't perform, who are they going to look at? Me, as a contracting officer, and say, why'd you award them a contract? And I, I should at least be able to say, well, because they had good past performance. They've done it before. It's a pretty good indicator. So that's why CPARS is, is important enough to talk about. Well, not only to talk about, but, you know, there's documentation in order to award it. And you and I discussed the other part of this, the documentation from the contractor side uh, to, you know, make sure that you your your PM has documented all of the work you've done that was within scope, uh, the time frame within which it was executed, all that stuff. So if if you're not God awful happy with the rating you get, you can at least go have a talking point. Correct. And, and just because I, I researched it ahead of time. So we actually have three podcast episodes specifically about CPARS, uh, uh, 110, 174, and 366. And they're covering different things. Uh, so Shelly Hall from our team, she's, she was she was my trainer way back in the day when she was a contracting officer and I was a contract specialist, but she's been on our team for a while. She's our CPARS queen, right? And so and she's on, I think she's on 110 and 174. But the idea, she walks through what is it, how does it work? And, and to your point, 
we said a minute ago about the, the contractor's perspective. And, and if you want to push back on it, you have 14, you have 60 days to officially reply. And, and there's their whole process there. But the biggest thing to be aware of, and she foot stomps this in all three of these episodes, you got to reply within 14 days. Because once it goes into the system, any modifications to the CPARs after that initial one are going to get pushed onto the second screen. So what am I going to see as a contracting officer? The first screen. So if the first screen said you were marginal and then they went and fixed it and we got it all good and now, now it shows that you're exceptional. But if all I saw is the first screen, the way to avoid that is 14 days. <laughs> and so you, you would ask like, you know, can contractors you know, protect themselves from, from bad CPAR? Yes, but you have to, have to actively engage in them. So it's, it's kind of like uh, being, you know, you do a Google search and you show up on page two or three and nobody goes that far. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, you, you don't want your good news to be on page three. You want no. your good news to be on page one. No. Um, but, you know, when, when, when somebody's asking for a debrief, from your perspective, how do, how do you coach people on that? What do you tell them to do when they're going in? Because, I mean, we joked about this uh, before this segment and on our show uh, um, that, you know, if, if you whine, uh, you, you may not end up with the result you're looking for. And, yeah, and on top of that, I would say you very rarely end up with the result you're looking for. But you're going to create a defensive environment. Uh, we've got, I don't know, four or five episodes on, on uh, debriefings. And one of them is called the offensive versus a defensive debriefing. And so, so for example, one of the best ways to make a, a debriefing defensive is bring your lawyer with you. Because right out of the gate, now I'm, I'm making sure I got my lawyer. And, and now it's, it's a lot, just like that. It's a lot less conversation. And it's a more about, I don't want to step on anything that makes this protestable. And so many of the debriefings that I sat through or either as a, as a contracting officer or as a contract specialist or at, at any point in my career, the more, the more we were afraid you were going to protest, the more closed-lipped we were. And so I, I caution folks that there's a lot that has to go right for you to be able to – let's assume you had a debriefing and you lost, which, by the way, we recommend having a debriefing when you won. You can still ask for that. That's a really – it's one of my favorite things to do as a contracting officer was do a, a winner's debriefing because everybody's happy. It's a really great conversation. But, but aside from that, let's assume you're doing a debriefing for, for and, and you lost. Right out of the gate, my expectation is you're, you're looking for some fodder to be able to protest, right? A lot of things have to go right for you to be able to get that work anyway. So if you go in with a mindset of, okay, we've already lost it. We're not extremely unlikely to get this work back. And, and if that's how you feel, tell them up front. The times that I've had the, the company tell, look, we don't want to protest. We, we know we screwed something up here. Frankly, we've got other, I remember this word for word. We have other projects we're working on. So this, is, this isn't that big of a deal, but the big deal is we wanted to serve you guys. What did we screw up? That was the most open debriefing I've ever had. Most of the other ones were, were much more about let's not step on the landmines. They've got the lawyers here. One guy came in, I told this on um, episode seven, we talked about like, how long ago was that? Good grief. Uh, actually, it was episode nine. Sorry. Uh, we talked about somebody came into to the, to the debriefing and first words out of his mouth is I'm going to protest. I just got to find out how. <laughs> what am I going to say to that? It's well, like, how can I help you? Yeah, exactly. It's how do I get out of the room as fast as possible? Because again, I'm, I'm a human. I don't want to. And again, you, you zoom out to the mission here is to, to create a contract and deliver a contract that delivers a product for somebody, right? So all of this activity beyond communicating with industry 
any kind of defense of a protest I have to do, all of that fear I have going, that doesn't help the customer. It doesn't help the mission. It's all sideways activity. So it's, it's not something I want to spend a lot of time on, right? So I'm very defensive to it. I'm trying to avoid it. So I would say that uh, from, a, from a planning perspective, if you don't plan to protest, if you don't plan to fight through this one, if you really realize, okay, I can see how we would have lost this one, tell them that. Now, that being said, if you think you have a chance to fight, we, what, what we coach our clients on is we, we actually come up with a, a guide, a debriefing guide, and it'll be things like the black text are the ones that you that they have to answer or give you a reason why they're not. The red text are the ones I would answer, would ask, and then the blue text are the ones that mm, you might get an answer, but don't expect it. And so we help them kind of understand what's going to happen in a debriefing. But a lot of that is going to be focused on what, what's your mindset going in, because that sets the tone for how the contracting officer feels. That being said, my caveat then for the podcast, for the, the government folks listening, the written debriefing, I, I think is, is something that should, should, should not happen, frankly. I mean, we can do a phone call. We can do a Zoom call. You know, the amount of time it takes to do an actual debriefing instead of just sending somebody a letter, I think that that's one of the things that's getting away in getting in the way of, of government and industry communicating. And I don't think I did any of them <laughs> for the reason I've talked about, but I've seen a lot of them. And it, it is, it, it basically what it says is I'm going to, I'm literally going to mail in my answers and I get it. People are busy. They may have a, maybe, maybe the way they're in that their agency does it, but that's one of those things. When I, when I coach contract contracting officers, the perception of giving them a, a or just a written debrief, you, know, you get that letter that says this constitutes your debriefing. Well, it's, the intent of a debriefing is to be two way. <laughs> just sending me an email and saying, poof, this is all you're going to get you're already setting the contractor up for frustration. And I don't have any data on this, but I would bet that you'll, they've, those kind of debriefings have probably generated more questions and potential protests than even just talking to them would have. Because we, we said this on the podcast a few times that, that contractors need context, which is why they ask questions. It's why we have a debriefing system. If the contractor really doesn't get any, enough context to know why they lost, their, their nuclear option is the protest. And I wish I had seen that as clearly as a contracting officer. I would have given them many, many more steps along the way before they get the protest. But a lot of folks, because they're not getting answer from the government team, the only way I can get context is to do a FOIA or to protest. And both of those are seen as, you know, the nuclear action. Right. All right. We're going to take our last break. Kevin, we'll be back for 10 more minutes. Stay tuned. It's going to be worth it. Uh, you're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with uh, Kevin Jan, CEO of Skyway Acquisitions. What's the uh, URL for Skyway, Kevin? Skywayacq.com. Thank so, you. I so should have covered that before. <laughs> <laughs> and and the uh, the uh, podcast, Kevin's podcast, can be found at govconpodcast.com. Let's let's talk about my favorite sandbox in this last segment. Um, LinkedIn is an extraordinary tool. Uh, a lot of people still know don't know how to use it well. But um, I did a session oh, four or five years ago for NCMA, and my session was on how contracting officers can use LinkedIn in the anonymous mode to vet contractors, SMEs, mm-hmm. and pretty much anything else they wanted to. Um, what's, what's your experience here? How, how do contracting officers leverage LinkedIn or, or do they all? 
So I would say they don't as much as they should. And and the, the best evidence I have for that, if you look at most contracting officers or contracts folks, they'll have like 90 or like make a couple hundred connections. <laughs> that, that's the trend that I've seen. Uh, so a, a lot of it is that they're, they're just not as, as not every agency is open to it uh, or wasn't until recently. Uh, so for example, uh, I don't know, the first five years of my career when, what, during LinkedIn uh, being pretty active, there wasn't a lot of, there was fear that putting ourselves out there would open us up to more communication. That's super ironic. I get that, right? Now it's actually a very effective tool for that. So I would say I'll, I'll, the most of the time you'll see the contracting officers using it either professionally or they're using it as part of their, their market research. Unfortunately, so far, I think they use it more on the professional side where it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a networking tool. It's for job placement. It's there for the resume, et cetera, et cetera. I like your idea of using it more as a, as a market research tool is to be able to look at a company profile and say, okay, yes, they actually have 60 employees and like here are their names and faces as opposed to company says, Hey, we've got, you know, SMEs. Well, now you can actually see who they are. So they don't use it as much for that. Um, again, I didn't, I didn't, as a contracting officer, I barely even used it uh, as, as much because it, it was, it was frowned upon. It was perceived to not be you know, a real data at that point. Now it is. So what I'm noticing is contracting officers are using it more as a, validation tool so they, they get your proposal and they'll put in they'll put in the in the rfp that we reserve the right to look at the information about you like market research about you outside of your proposal it's one of the first places that they, they would go because well, when they google you that's one of the first places that comes up so but again it adds that validity of when you say you have smes where are they when you put this person's resume in your proposal and that person actually works for your company and i can see them on linkedin and i can see that what you said in your on the resume in in the uh, for the key personnel in your proposal actually matches what's on their mark on, on the LinkedIn. That's huge. So that's one of the best ways to use it. Uh, one of the other ways I'm seeing that they're using it is as a collaboration tool. Uh, a, just a, a lot of the, the contracting officers, like for example, if you I'm not, don't go shopping for contracting officers in here, but we have a LinkedIn group, the contracting officer podcast group on LinkedIn. All of those folks, all of those contracting officers in there, it's probably about a half of them. They're actively looking for the context that I'm talking about. That's why they joined that group. They've opted into our group because they want the context of industry. They're trying to solve this problem. And so they're using it as much as an education and collaboration tool. And I have uh, podcast feedback sessions with them. I have podcast feedback sessions with lots of folks, probably one, one or twi- once or twice a week, but about a third of them are government folks, which is how I learn all this of how they're actually used us. So, OPM has the des- the the designation for contracting officers at 1109 1102 1102 I knew it was 11 something um there is actually a group on LinkedIn of 1102s and I yep. joined it way back when and then when I started posting they kicked me out because they saw that I wasn't a contracting officer <laughs> but I mean, and we're talking a half dozen years back, but there was like 5,000 people on that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah so a, they're, they're here. A... Um, is it worthwhile for industry to try to connect with a contracting officer on LinkedIn? Short answer is is maybe. <laughs> I, I would say it is if you sell what their agency buys. Um, if you're if you're using it the same way you would you would scrape the data from sam.gov that there's you know 2,000 contracting officers in this particular NAICS code and you just spam them all okay that's not as effective 
But if you act, if, if you know they work, if you're, if you're targeting, I don't know, the VA and they're a VA accounting officer that works in the vision that, that you want to sell or that you already have a contract, that's a real reason. If you already have a contract with their agency, then that's a, that's a real pretext to connect with them. But again, it goes back to, we, we have a podcast 222 about the technical versus the business sale. And the technical sale is, does that, does that government agency want what I sell? The business sale is, how will they buy it from me? And so if you don't have the technical sale yet, meaning that they don't know who you are and, and whether or not you can solve their problem, then that's a good rule of don't contact the contracting officers because they're not going to, I have no reason to talk to you if you don't, you don't actually sell what my agency buys. Otherwise you're just spamming me. You might as well just be connected with anybody on LinkedIn. Okay. When, when I'm coaching companies uh, on developing relationships with an agency prior to even going after business with them. Once you figure out they, they do buy what you want, you figure out their contractual vehicle preference. Uh, then you start some outreach to, uh, you know, you get ahead of the RFP to introduce them. So when, you know, if you submit anything, the contracting officer does have an idea of who you are. Correct. Um, how, how valuable is it to know uh, who the customer is and who that funding person is uh up front uh, very uh if if you know who the the economic decider is which is harder to find that tends to be sure that, that could be as high, high up the chain as congress for that matter but the customer is going to tend to be more visible like the people you run into at conferences the one the ones who are actively seeking information to because they have the problem that's the user that's the one who needs the product or the equipment or the service that they're, they're the one you're going to talk to the most what i would recommend if you're once you've built a, a relationship with them and you started to build some some connections with other contracting officers at their agency ask them is there a contracting officer that, that you work with that i should be connected with because now you're getting the technical sale they're, they're the user they're getting to know you because you're absolutely right it it makes things better for you if when i see your proposal as a contracting officer i've heard of you well the one of the great ways to have heard of you is going to be on linkedin as opposed to you, you sending me, you know, 50 spam emails that I deleted most of. Or seeing your picture in a post office. <laughs> <laughs> there's, yeah, there's that problem. <laughs> we, there's, there's been a few contractors there, you know, fortunately rare. Fortunately <laughs> yeah, rare. Fortunately rare. Yeah. So we've got a couple minutes left. Give me, give me your wrap up thoughts here. Um, what, what do, what does industry need to do? to um not piss off contracting officers <laughs> uh yeah a lot of the stuff i talked about is just spam me before you know that we have uh, that you actually have something that we need um assume that i can just award something that that, that one cracked me up uh, the number of times that, I, that, that they say oh just do it it's like well there's a process for this right we wish the processes were shorter but they're just not right the good news is there are fast ways through the far there are letter contracts there are simplified acquisition procedures. There are commercial item acquisition strategies. There are lots of ways to go through the FAR quickly. But if you're coming to me with, hey, just buy this from me because of, you know, one of the most irritating things is people say, hey, I've got my 8A, I've got my SDV, USB, I'm a woman owned, I've got my tickets, buy this from me. And I go back to that core problem. Are you asking me to buy something that my customer needs? Because if the answer is no, it doesn't matter what your tickets are. I have I, I can just buy stuff for the sake of it. I have to have a requirement. It's not my requirement. It's something that I'm executing on behalf of somebody else. You'd need a really big closet. 
Yes. Yeah. That, that's, a, that's an interesting point. It's like if, if I were, and here's what's scary. If I'm the one that you're, if, if you're relying on Ke- Kevin Jan's contracting officer to be the decider on like whether or not this cybersecurity software is going to work, I'm not qualified to make that decision. You don't want me making that decision. You want the customer saying, this is the good stuff. This will work. There, here are three small businesses that can do it. Hey, Mr. Contracting Officer, go execute a simplified acquisition procedure between these three. That I can do. And But if you start with the idea of, hey, buy this from me, it, it's a frightening concept to think I'm, I'm the one deciding on the technical solution. And there's a few things that I do, have, do, do know how to buy, but most of the stuff that I bought, up to it, including aircraft, I have technical experts around me telling me this is the one we want. Cool. Skywayacq.com and govconpodcast.com. Uh, Kevin, thanks so much, man. This was a blast. This was a blast. And I always, always enjoy talking to you. And yeah, if, if anybody needs help with training or consulting, that's, that's our bailiwick. So there reach you out go. to us. I'd love to talk to you. And, and uh, more knowledge you're going to be hard pressed to find. So give them a shout. Um, I appreciate it. My pleasure. This is not my day job. I advise companies on building a subject matter expert platform that's vettable on LinkedIn, uh, (laughs) on on social selling and content marketing. If these resonate, please drop me a line at MarkAmtower at Gmail or find me on LinkedIn. And thanks for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.